So today what we're going to do is continue this uh, class on bloodlines and battles. And so here's our overview of different things. Last time we looked at the cosmic war, this big battle between God and Satan over who has sovereign authority is really a, a quick, simple picture of what that is. Today we're going to look at the way of Cain, and we'll pick that up again a little bit more next week. Uh, the way of Cain, the New Testament tells us, is woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain. And we'll see when we look next week, there you can belong to a bloodline, that's your genetic relationship, and you can also belong to a way or a way of thinking or a worldview. So that's primarily what this way of Cain is about. We're going to do today just look basically at Genesis and the story of Cain and Abel and probably learn some very interesting things of how this kind of pieces and fits together. So we know there's the seed of the woman, we know there's the serpent, and we know the serpent will be crushed. And so we finished last week just a little bit with Genesis 3 and the curse. And so this story of Genesis 4 and Cain, Eve probably had a little bit of hope that maybe this first child might be the one that finally destroys that serpent. Uh, We don't know that, but we know that the seed of the woman is going to be a centerpiece of all of Scripture. Uh, So here's our objectives that will go in your notes. Number one, we're going to just look at the story. We're just going to read the story of Cain and Abel. Then the offering that they each brought. And then we'll look at the men themselves and we'll close by looking at judgment. So we'll start up here with the story. We'll just kind of read this through. Now the man, this is Adam, had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, whose name means a mere breath. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so you know Eve has gone back to God. Of course, he sovereignly put enmity between her and the serpent. But now she realizes it's through the help of God that she's able to keep not only being alive, but has a baby. And then there's Cain, a form thing, manufacturing. And we'll see his line has a lot of productivity in it. We move on. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain, for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. Number one, both Cain and Abel brought an offering to God. Both Cain and Abel brought an offering to God. In the Hebrew, it's a mina, and that's the same thing that comes in the Levitical laws and all that for what an offering or a sacrifice is. So it's not like this was supposed to be different than what shows up later. It's all part of the same stuff. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, that's an interesting phrase, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord appointed to Cain a sign so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife. She conceived, gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So that's the passage of Genesis 4, this Cain and Abel. We're going to break it down a little bit here as we go. But who do you think this is about? Who's the main character? I'll give you a hint. There we go. Cain is the main character. Uh, so I just highlighted Cain. You can see his name in there 16 times. So that's the passage we read. And Cain is obviously a key, if not the key person in this passage. Number two, Genesis chapter four is primarily about Cain. So we can see, how about other characters? Here's God or the Lord. How many times? Cain 16. This is about 11. There's several right there, eight, where God is directly communicating to Cain, not through an intermediary, but directly to Cain. So if we remove the time, well, number three, God's primary role in Genesis 4 is communicating directly to Cain, directly to Cain. So if we remove the eight times that God is directly communicating or relating to Cain, we see God's only in there three times. And each of those are one of the ladies saying, with the help of him, we have offspring. Well, how about Abel? Abel's in there several times. Abel stands in contradistinction to Cain. So everything Abel is doing is good, and then it's his blood. And the text emphasizes your brother multiple times to Cain with the proximity of their relationship. So that's the story, just kind of the basics. Now we're going to go through and look at the offering that each of these guys made. So one is of flesh and blood, and the other is produce of the ground. So we're going to look at the offering. It came about in the course of time, they don't tell us when, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. What did Cain bring? Oh, you're looking for the paper. Uh, it's just of the fruit of the ground. There's a, no mention at all. Is this his first fruits? Was it the tail remnant? Is it kind of blemish stuff? Does it have, uh, you know, worms in the apples or whatever it is? It doesn't say. It's just kind of very standard, very pedestrian what Cain brings. But Abel brings from the first. He goes to the flock and of the first and of their fat portion. So you see a lot more detail of what Abel brings. He is bringing the best of the best, like a spotless lamb, a perfect, unblemished thing. And you notice how God requires that in sacrifice all through Scripture? Why are you bringing the lame and the deaf and the blind? Bring me the best of the best. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord had regard for Abel. What part of Abel? His heart, the man himself, the Lord judges Abel has the right heart in the way he is coming to me with worship and his offering. So I accept the man and, a second thing, his offering. 
So it's not just the offering. It's like when we come, we take communion, we worship. Are we just singing? Are we doing stuff? Or are we there in our heart worshiping God? What's in our heart and what we give. But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So not only for the man, his heart, and his offering, the same dual component here, his heart is not right, and his offering is not right. On both counts, Abel is accepted, Cain is rejected. As a result of this, Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Number four, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So we look at an offering. Anytime we give anything to God, there's at least two components. In this specific offering, we see, number one, the quality. Abel is bringing the best of his best. If you give your first fruits to God, how do you know you're getting more crops or new things born, whatever it is, how do you know you're not going to run out when you give the first, you're giving out of faith. When you give from the middle of the end, you're taking care of yourself first. So Abel is bringing the best of the best, the fattest ones of the firstborn. But then there's the type of offering. So Abel brought from the flocks, a living animal shed its blood. How about Cain? Produce of the ground. So one brings flesh and blood, the other brings produce from the ground. I mean, let's just, I don't know what it was that Cain brought, but there's grain offerings in Scripture, isn't there? Why would that be wrong? So the question is, is it wrong to give a grain offering to God? It's not, but we have to understand when, why, where did God ever model, ask for, or require a grain offering at this point in time? Zero. That doesn't happen until the book of Leviticus. Now we see in Leviticus 2, there's a grain offering. And yes, they burn it, but it's not categorized as a burnt offering. The burnt offering is the live flesh that makes atonement for sin. So here's Leviticus, and you can just look through the whole thing, and there is the burnt offering, which is living animal flesh. You kill it. How do they do this when you go through the law? You have your little kids, and you put your hand on the bull's head, and then you slit its throat. You signify, I am putting my sin on this sinless animal. It didn't do anything, but it's a temporary substitutionary blood sacrifice, and you slit its throat, and you do that with your children. That's how you teach what sin does. You can read the book of Leviticus. It's just an outline. Yes, you have the atonement, but it's the big picture, and then the details, and then you put the big picture again. You have to understand the blood for the atonement, but it starts up here with animal sacrifices. Then you have grain sacrifice. The grain sacrifice is a thanks sacrifice or offering, thanksgiving. Number five, before we can legitimately offer thanks, we first must understand and accept atonement, substitutionary blood, must be shed. There's nothing to be thankful for until you take care of that. So there's two ways. Two ways to come to God in worship. We can come with pride, like Cain. Look what I have produced from the ground. And he doesn't even bring the best of it, but he's just showing God, look what I've been able to do here. I am a mighty, powerful man. Or we can have humility. Look at the vast difference. Abel understands 
how he stands before God. I am a sinner. I deserve death. But I understand this principle of atonement and substitutionary blood sacrifice. I am going to give you the best that I have. I do not deserve to even stand here before you, but I'm going to give that, kill it as a temporary covering for me so that I can be accepted. I am not good enough to stand before you. Complete opposite framework. So theoretically, how many ways could God ask for offering or sacrifice? An infinite number. You could always come up with something to do, just like how did God create? Well, there's an infinite number of ways God could have created that are all irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what did he choose to do And then what does he ask us to do? How did he create? He created over six literal 24-hour days. He makes that clear. So it doesn't matter what he could have done. It matters what he did. How many ways could he have come up with doing a sacrifice? He, He could have come up with all sorts of ways. But he knows what actually works is there must be blood. That's the way he set it up. And that's what he demonstrated to Adam and Eve. I like these Answers in Genesis cartoons because they we don't know it was a lamb, but it quite likely was because that's what all goes through. Either that or a bull goes through the Old Testament. Then we know Christ, though, is the Lamb of God. So it makes sense to circle that wagon. The Lord God made garments of skin for an Adam and his wife and clothed them. How do you make garments of skin and leave the animal alive? So God graphically displayed animal death as a substitution, and then the atonement, the covering, is the animal skin. But that's temporary. This one's a good, nice, gross one. You look at that. Uh, how do we teach our children? Do we teach them, don't worry, have good self-esteem, even though you didn't accomplish anything yet? Feel good about yourself for nothing? That's what our world teaches. Or do we teach... Sin is ugly. Bloodshed is ugly. Death is ugly. It's a result of my sin, our sin. It's a result of sin that everything must die, and including this lamb that in the Passover system, you raise a lamb for a year, and then you march off to Jerusalem and slit its throat with your kids with their hand on the lamb. God is not concerned about our comfort or our self-esteem. He wants us to have God's esteem. How are we in God's eyes, not our own eyes? And he demonstrates this graphically. Cain rejects it. So Cain is really kind of the first non-believer who actively rejects God. But are non-believers religious or non-religious? We hear it all the time. Uh, yeah, we hear them say uh, that they're not religious or something, but everybody's religious. Now some people bow down. They might face Mecca several times. We will come and give worship performance But I would suggest mankind is created to worship. Just like you ever seen an infant and how they just look at the mouth and the lips, what are they created for? Language and communication. They're created for it. And if they live in a vacuum, their brain doesn't develop right at all. They have a critical development period where they've got to get this language in, but they crave it. They're created for it. Just like we're created to be religious and to worship. The question is what? It might be the sun, the moon, the stars. It might be wealth. It might be fame. It might be my own pride that I'm worshiping. But we all fill that void to worship something because that's how we were created. Take the Greek system. Apotheosis. This is Heracles. Hercules in the Roman, but Greek would be Heracles. Athena takes him up in her chariot. Why did he undergo apotheosis? What is that? In football, the apotheosis or the high point of the season would be the Super Bowl. Comes up in a few weeks. What is the apotheosis of football? 
the Super Bowl. There is no college team that would lay claim to being the best football team in the world because they know they're not going to beat the Super Bowl champions, right? That is the pinnacle, the apotheosis. In the Greek humanistic ancestor worship religious system, what is the apotheosis? You do like its ancestor worship. You do like what Heracles did. Through your labors and your, your works, you earn apotheosis or deification. Upon his death, he enters the pantheon of the gods. So the Parthenon, again, is the building with the pillars. The pantheon is the group of gods. So Heracles earned deification. So did Alexander the Great. They legitimately earned it within that system. That would be a humanistic system. It's all about me. Look what I am bringing to the table. There is no humility here. We look at the temptation. Satan comes in. Last week we talked about he wants us to think something that is not true. Last week we looked at you can be an autonomous moral being. You can determine what is right or wrong. That is a false statement. You can't. Here's another obvious one that is not true in Genesis 3, 5. Ye shall be as gods. That's in the King James. Different versions. You shall be as God or ye shall be as gods. Technically, it's Elohim. It's plural. What did the Greeks do? Ye shall, plural, ye shall all become gods if you labor hard enough, if you do enough. That's exactly what Satan is saying. That's what Lucifer wanted, was to be as the high God. Can we become deity? Obviously, we understand that's a false thing. Finite cannot become infinite. Number six, Satan convinces many that ye shall be as gods or God. You can put a little g plural or a big G. Either way can work for the, for the concept. Ultimately, Lucifer wants to be the big G, but he can't. So here we see on one side, man, his accomplishment, pride. That would be a humanistic system really embodied in the Greek system, which would be apotheosis. Counter that with a substitutionary death. A perfect and blameless thing that comes and dies, gives up but then is resurrected. So you see why every time Paul is speaking to the Greeks. So Peter, he primarily worked with the Jews, and he just talked about Christ, the risen Lord. They understood who the Messiah was. Paul had to go back to creation. There's a creator God. That creator God actually came and died, and it's because of him, not because of you. It's because of his work and the power to resurrect, but the choice to die, and he gives you this gift. You didn't earn it. You see how that runs counter to the apotheosis of the Greeks. Wait a minute, I need to accomplish this of my own two hands. Opposites. Genesis 22, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, Isaac's like 100 years, uh, Abraham's 100 years old. Isaac's a teenage kid. He could easily kick him in the shin and run. But he submits to his father, but he's, he's starting to size this up I, he doesn't mention the knife, but he knows his father's got a big old knife, and he, he's carrying the wood. He's doing all the work, and they've got the fire, and they're like, I don't see the lamb. Abraham's answer, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two went on together. And Abraham had said earlier, the two of us will go, and we will return. He fully believed he'd just resurrect his son. But God will provide. You notice how God did that with Adam and Eve. God provides the lamb. God provides the covering. We cannot provide our own salvation. So the truth is very simple. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The same with the sacrificial system. Here is the way to do it, and it's all pinnacling up to Christ, the perfect lamb, the alpha and the omega. So now we're going to go to a look of the two men, Adam, or I mean, excuse me, uh, Cain and Abel, and kind of compare and contrast them. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Won't you have joy instead of bitterness, rage, and anger? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the if-then statements with buts are always interesting in Scripture. What God is saying is sin is crouching at your door, ready to devour you. Like Satan is a ravenous lion, roaring, looking for someone to devour. But here the concept is to have authority over you. You must master it, but it's sitting here. But... You must master it. You can't give in to it. In the Psalms, establish my footsteps in your word. Do not let any iniquity or sin have dominion over me. This is the concept. I give in to this. It will now have dominion or authority over me because I gave it. So let's look in our brain. It's in your heart. So you have our flesh in the limbic system. You have our mind in the prefrontal cortex our anterior cingulate cortex right in the interface, and that's where you stimulate and inhibit. So there's two stimulatory and two inhibitory centers there. You can either stimulate or inhibit the flesh. You can either stimulate or inhibit the mind, and it sits right in the middle. That's what the Bible means when it says our heart. It's where we make a choice to choose in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. It's not talking about this, and that's exactly what God was telling Cain. This is crouching at the door of your heart, and it wants authority over you. Use your in your mind, but it's your heart where you want. What do you want to choose? That's the heart. You must want me and joy and reject evil. But Cain, of course, embraced evil. Number seven, it is in our heart that we must set apart Christ as Lord. That is a choice, an act of will. It's in our heart. Genesis 4.8, Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So this is in New American Standard, a fairly literal translation. And this is a correct, you'll read some, they'll say they were having a conversation in the field, or Cain said, let's go to the field. Here in the Hebrew, it's an incomplete sentence. Cain told Abel, his brother, or talked with Abel, his brother. You don't know where, and you don't know what the object was. Now we know they end up in the field, so it probably had something to do. But it's a fragmentary statement. Cain told Abel, his brother. Then they went in the field, and this is premeditated murder. Cain killed him. That's the same. That is not for manslaughter, like you swing the axe and the head falls and kills a guy. That's not murder. That would be manslaughter in some form. This is the direct premeditated murder word used here of what Cain does to his brother Abel. So he rises up and kills him in a premeditated fashion. However it was, he set this meeting up in the field. Think of that first family the ramifications of what this does to their unity. So the character of the man, remember Abel was accepted, both his heart and his offering. Cain was rejected, both the man, his heart, and his offering. Our character is displayed by our worship. 
Are we coming? Look what I have to offer to the church. Look what I have to give. I'm, look at how much money I just threw in the pocket. Look at what I did. Or do we approach with humility and thank you, Lord, that you even want to commune with me, just a worm, sin, and I should die. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So now we see the New Testament weighing in. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. So we know it was the better one, faith. Well, let's see. Abel used animal bloodshed. He took from the best of his flock and he kills it and offers it up to God. Cain had some kind of produce. What's the difference? What is the faith in? What would the faith be? We're not, it's not spelled out, but we know that Abel understands the substitutionary death, bloodshed, and atonement. Faith that this is what I need to do, but also faith, if I do this, God will now accept me. That's what solves my problem of sin that I can't solve myself. And God had already demonstrated that graphically to Adam and Eve. In Hebrews 9, almost all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This principle runs from the very beginning in the garden. So, what was Abel? We know he tended flocks, and we know that Cain worked the ground. But beyond that, what was his character? Does the New Testament say? So Hebrews 4, which chapter is that again? That's the faith chapter. So Hebrews 4 uh, is the faith chapter. Abel, first guy in the list. First guy is Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel was righteous. Another New Testament, 1 John 3. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who is of the evil one, and slew his brother. He was of the evil one. So that's not a genetic lineage, that's just a way of thinking. And for what reason did Cain slay Abel? Because Cain's deeds were evil and his brother Abel's deeds were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The deeds, what are the deeds? They're either evil or righteous. What were Abel's? Righteous. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Number eight, in order to be declared righteous, Abel must have known what to do. You can't do right unless you know what's right and wrong. So that tells you, obviously, that God and or Adam had told these boys, here's how it works. Adam knew because that's what God did. It's what he demonstrated, and that's what he requires, is a bloodshed sacrifice. So yes, Abel exactly knew what that was, and he did it, because otherwise, how are you righteous? You just look this up in the dictionary, acting in accord with divine or moral law. So he must have known what to do, or else he could not have been declared righteous by God. So he knows what God showed Adam and Eve, and he continues to do it, and Cain, he just rejects that. So now we look at this offering. There's two components. What is in your heart? And then your heart will lead to your actions. And so God is judging both of these, you see. What was the offering they gave, and what was the heart of the man himself? Cain is rejected on both counts. Abel is accepted on both counts. 
Reminds me of when David is going to be anointed king and Samuel comes and David's father, Jesse, rejects him. He's the Catan. He's the worthless one. He specifically doesn't invite him, even though he's told to invite all the boys, leaves him out in the field. And Eliab is his firstborn. And Jesse never says, this is my son, David, ever in scripture. I never have found it. But he will say, this is my son Eliab, or my son Shammah, and he will bring them through. And Eliab's a big, strong guy. So Sam is like, whoa, look at the height. This guy's got to be the king. And you know David is rejected. Psalm 27 tells you specifically he's rejected by both his mother and his father, and that was written before his anointing. So he was rejected by man and accepted by God. Another interesting story. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at Eliab, his appearance, the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. God sees not as man sees, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord, Yahweh, looks at the heart. So Abel was righteous. So we know he had flocks. Cain worked the ground. There's not, that's not the problem. It's what you're doing. He could have easily sold grain and bought a lamb and sacrificed that. So it's not your profession. It's what you choose to do. So Abel worked flocks. Abel was righteous. What else? What other profession type was Abel? A prophet. So the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged again. And this is Jesus. From the blood of Abel. So he was the first martyr, but he was also what? He was a prophet. Well, what does a prophet do? A prophet speaks on behalf of God. Now we start to use interweaving scripture to see what some of the things Cain and Abel were discussing and why Cain was getting so mad at Abel because Abel is the spokesman for God saying, Cain, this is not the way it's supposed to be done. And it probably was not just a one-off event. This was probably a series of character-revealing events. And Abel is saying, here's the way it's supposed to be. And Cain is saying, who are you to tell me what I will do? And these are the martyred prophets. So Adam was the first prophet. Only Adam, the first Adam, and Jesus Christ, the second or the last Adam, are the only two men who ever fulfilled all three offices of priest, uh, prophet, and king. Only those two. No one else has all three of those. The first and the last Adam, which is just an interesting thing. Abel was a prophet. Number nine. Not only was Abel righteous, he was also a prophet. So we know he's speaking on behalf of God, even if we don't have recorded exactly what he said. Or do we? Is there a way that we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture and know what at least one message was that Abel was giving to Cain and other people? Is that possible? All scriptures inspired by God, proper teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All scripture. So yes, we legitimately use New Testament to shed light on Old Testament. Acts 3.18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Huh. Let's understand the concept. Acts 1. Jesus has resurrected and then ascends, and he's teaching about the kingdom. Acts 2, Peter, yes, we as Jews know it's going to be about King David. He will resurrect and be the king in the millennial kingdom. We want the kingdom. We don't want these Romans. But what is Peter saying? He's dead. He's in the grave. He's decayed. Christ, however, is different. He's not an angel. He is deity. He's God. He became man. He died, and he resurrected. David hasn't resurrected yet. Christ did. You've seen it. 
and he has now ascended. That was Acts 2. Acts 3, Peter is now preaching about the kingdom. So now the kingdom is the next thing, but David's still in the ground. It's not happening yet. The suffering of Christ has thus been fulfilled. Who all spoke that? All the prophets. Would that include Abel? Yes, he may not have said the words Jesus Christ because that hasn't been revealed yet. But you see the atonement, the bloodshed, innocence must die and perfect innocence, not the garbage leftover stuff, the perfect, the unblemished must die as looking forward to the death. After that, we can look back to the death and resurrection of Christ. But all the prophets, even if it's not recorded in written word, we know what they spoke, don't we? That sheds a lot of light on this dialogue between Cain and Abel. The Christ would suffer, the Messiah. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successor onward announce these days. What are these days? In Acts 3, that is, the suffering is now done. The next thing to happen is the kingdom. When did the kingdom come into existence? With when? Oh, that would be the church. The church came in at Pentecost. The church is not the kingdom. The kingdom came into existence with Saul, the first what? king. That's the kingdom. So that's a unified kingdom. There was no kingdom before Saul. Who was the prophet that brought that in? Samuel. So you see why Samuel is the guy talking about the kingdom. Because Samuel is one that ushers in the kingdom. United kingdom Saul rejected on two counts. You have the kingdom and you have the eternal dynasty. David has both. Saul was rejected on both counts. So the kingdom moved from the line of Saul and Benjamin over to the line of the tribe of Judah, which is David. God sovereignly did that. And then David will go to the Messiah. But that is the kingdom. And then Solomon, it was united after that was divided. But it will come back together again in the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom. Doesn't have anything to do with the church. They're two totally different things. So Samuel, we can see why he's preaching and teaching about the kingdom because it started with him. But all the guys before, it was still always about the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega, and how he must die. So Samuel, they also announced these days, talking what's the next step, which is the kingdom. And he said, Jesus, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Do you think Abel was welcome in his family? For sure not by Cain. Because he's telling them God's way. And Cain says, I'm going to do it my way. And you have a headbutting contest between these two. Jesus, again, if the world hates you, in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So we looked earlier, Genesis chapter 4, and we said, well, who's it about? And you see Cain in there 18 times. But now that we apply New Testament and we're searching as for hidden treasure and interweaving Scripture, and we see what's really going on, here's the question. Who is Genesis 4 really about? It's about Jesus. It's about the Alpha and the Omega um, is who this is really about. Look how easy we take her off the ball. Number 10, even if not immediately obvious, Scripture is about the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. How easy it is to lose focus and take our eye off the ball. Got to have a little fun. So now we go to the last one, judgment. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Where is Abel your brother? That tells you Cain did his deed and ran somewhere or moved. 
Because he's not, well, obviously he's right here. Now God's not asking for information. He knows he's dead over there behind the tree somewhere, buried, who knows. But Cain left, creates the mess, and leaves. And, well, I don't know. So, of course, he lies, just like Adam and Eve. He denies any responsibility. But then he says something else. Am I my brother's keeper? What is this? What he's doing is defying and challenging the premise behind God's question. God's asking him, where is Abel, your brother? He's saying, who is anyone to have the right to even ask me a question like that? He denies the ability of God to even form the premise of the question. You notice Jesus does that to the Pharisees all the time. They'll ask a question and he'll say, have you not read? He is denying them the ability to even form a proper premise. He's saying, your premise to the question is wrong. I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to destroy the premise of the question. Have you not read? They ask about the resurrection. You err because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God's resurrection. Jesus will critique the premise behind the question. That's what Cain is doing here, but he's doing that to God Almighty. Look at the pride of Cain. God. You notice God asks a question? After God comes in and tries to evangelize Cain, hey, if you do well, you can do good, but if not, there's going to be evil. And if you do right, I will come in and lift your countenance. There will be a supernatural transformation. Cain denies that. Now God doesn't ask any more questions. You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer. How does that differ from the curse on Adam? Isn't that kind of the same thing? When Adam sinned, God said, cursed is the ground for your sake or because of you. The ground has already been cursed. With Adam, it will still produce fruit. It's just going to be a difficult job. Now with Cain, Cain himself is cursed. You've worked in the field. You've worked in the ground. But it will not provide a crop for you again. Cain himself is cursed. How is he going to eat? They're not allowed to eat meat yet. He is now going to be dependent on their people and be a vagrant and a wanderer. Cain said, my punishment is too great. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. From your face I'll be hidden. I'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said, okay, here's a mark. So no one will do that. Whoever, well, who's Cain talking about? What was the population of the world? His brothers and sisters, but what was the population? So you do population, uh, you do population uh, growth, and that's exponential. If there's a million people and you have one more baby, that's a very small percentage. If you have two people and you have two babies, that's a 100% growth rate. So with a small population, your percentage is very high. If you go with, and it's typically 1% to 4 5%, kind of in there. It all depends on what part of the world you're looking at. But if you go to an 8% growth rate, you have 45,000 people by the time uh, Seth is born at 130 years, and that is about the timeline of when this murder would happen. So yes, there's plenty of people. It's not just five. If you have a 10% growth rate, which would be very achievable, you'd have half a million 500,000. So there's plenty of people for Cain to be nervous about. This is not a family of four, and that's it. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He settled. What was he supposed to be? Wandering, vagrant, dependent on other people, but he settles. He is defying God everywhere he can. Cain had relations with his wife. She conceived, gave birth to Enoch, built a city, called the name of the city Enoch. He goes and starts a government Who's do you think going to be in charge of that city? 
He is, yeah, I'm not going to be putting my hand out to you. I'm going to dictate, and then you guys bring to me. He's trying to do that. But this is a very interesting passage because God is sovereign. If you take a literal translation of this, it will say he is building a city. And it's funny grammar there that almost gives the impression that through his whole life, Cain is, or Cain is striving, working, striving, working, and never completes the darn thing. I don't know which is true. Different translations and commentators say different things, but that's, that's what the literal Hebrew is, is it was never actually completed. Even though he's trying to defy God, he has struggles to do it. But that's what he's doing in his heart is he's raising his fist up. You notice that's the same thing with Marxism? Raising this fist up, there is no God. The way of Cain, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. For they pay, uh, for pay, they have rushed headlong the heir of Balaam. What was Balaam? He was more interested in money, things of the world, than following God. He kind of knew he had to follow God, but it was very reluctant, standing up on the outside, sitting down on the inside. But then the rebellion of Korah, defiantly rejecting God's spokesman Moses in the Exodus very much like defiantly rejecting Abel and, in fact, rising up to kill him. And that's what Korah was wanting to do. They wanted to get rid of Moses. Eleven, the way of Cain is the blatant rejection of God's authority. So the truth is Jesus is the way. Here is the sacrificial system that I've shown. Here is the way to do a bloodshed offering. Cain sees that, recognizes that. His brother is telling him about it, but he is angry and he has hatred and he acts on his anger and he completely rejects that. Compare this to Eve. What did God do? He intervenes with Cain. Whoa, buddy. I see what's going on here, and he has direct conversation. Sin is crouching at your door before he does it. Did God do that with Eve? Whoa, <laughs> this serpent dude, let me tell you about him. You realize God didn't do that? He did with Cain, but not with Eve. This is pretty interesting. Eve never did ask for help. Cain never asked for help. But you see the sovereign plan of God with Eve and with Adam he knows one of the things he's going to do is allow evil to come into be. He doesn't stop that, but then he does sovereignly step in and place enmity there to bring Eve back to him, and therefore Adam. With Cain, he actually evangelizes, if you do what is right, I will sovereignly come and lift you up. The depravity of man has already been demonstrated in the garden. Without me, God, you can do nothing. So he already demonstrated that with Adam and Eve, and evil is now here. Evil was, God never made it, but he wanted it to be here, and we'll show you why. It's part of his plan. It never took him by surprise. So that's why he didn't stop it with Eve, but then he corrected the course, bringing Eve sovereignly back to God. Cain, he offered, but didn't force. So it's in a timeline. You go from eternity to eternity, Ionios to Ionios, from everlasting to everlasting, Time does not have an impact on eternity. Time came into existence. It has not always been. Time is not eternal. There was creation, the day number one. And then you have all is very good. That is critically important to understand. God renders judgment on day six, Genesis 131. It is all perfect. Then you have the fall of Lucifer after a period of time. Then you have the fall of man. Then you're going to have the flood. Then you're going to have the cross. You're going to have the resurrection. There's going to be a final judgment. When did sin come into existence? Iniquity. Ezekiel 28, right here. But you notice that impacted Lucifer and any angels that fell with him, but it did nothing to the cosmos, did nothing to the creation. Through the sin of one man, through the sin of one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. How did death enter the world? 
through Adam. Death. There wasn't death until Adam sinned. And Lucifer fell before. So he brought iniquity into the world. It was Adam's sin that brought death into the world. And that's what death told Adam. Meet of that tree, there will be death. Both of these get put into the final judgment and are done away with as we move into eternity. Part of the meaning of Ionios in the Greek for eternity is no time. It's not measured of time. There's no day, there's, or excuse me, there's no night in eternity. We won't sleep. We won't have to. God will be the light for us, but there's no day and night anymore. It comes to an end. So we might ask why this question last week, why would a good and sovereign God create evil? Of course, we know he didn't create evil because all that he created was good. He allowed evil, but it wasn't like, oh, shucks. It was that it was exactly part of his plan. And it's because he's good and he's sovereign. He's good because he's not focused about the here and now. He's focused about eternity. This is a brief 6,000-year period. He's looking for eternity, and he is sovereign. He can crush it and make it so it's not even theoretically possible in eternity. Twelve, only a good and sovereign God can destroy evil where it's not even theoretically possible. That'll be the eternal state. God is sovereign. He will crush the head of this serpent. And it's going to be his son, the Alpha and the Omega, that does that. So let's look at what happens to characters. So there's the red seven-headed dragon. That is Satan in Revelation 20. The devil who deceived them was thrown into what? The lake of fire and brimstone. Be fire that. He's in the abyss. That ain't the lake of fire. So in the kingdom, he's in the abyss. After the kingdom, he comes out. Then he gets chucked into the lake of fire. Nothing is in the lake of fire, by the way, now. Not one thing. That's yet future. So there's Hades with various compartments. That's another concept to understand those. Where the beast and false prophet are. So they are in the lake of fire, but you notice they're not consumed or done away with. It's eternal active destruction, not annihilation. So at the end of the church age, then you have uh, the movement into the kingdom. At that stage, the beast and false prophet, they don't go to the abyss, they go to the lake of fire. Satan goes to the abyss. After the thousand years, he comes out of the abyss for a short time and has one more battle with God. And then he's thrown, and that's where they are presently being destroyed, actively churned in the lake of fire. Revelation 20:14. then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You never get out of the lake of fire. You can get out of Hades, and you can get out of the abyss. Then, so you notice Satan... And death are thrown at different times. They cannot be the same thing. First Corinthians 15. For when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal would have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This has not happened yet. Yes, Jesus has died and resurrected, but death has not been swallowed up yet. This will be at the end of all the resurrections in Revelation 20. Death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Death, the biggest enemy. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, the last enemy that will be abolished is Satan. Ooh, death. You see how they're different? How do they get chucked in the abyss at different times, or into the lake of fire at different times? They are not one and the same. Number 13, evil and death are greater than Satan. They will exist in the millennium, just way toned down. There will be death. If you die before the age of a tree, about a thousand years, you're considered cursed. There will be death, but not much. Satan's in the abyss. But Satan's in the abyss. Death and evil are still occurring, just on a much reduced scale. They are not one and the same. He brought in evil. Adam brought in death. And they are bigger 
than any person. Yes, it's an abstract concept, but it's been made real and then crushed, and it'll be thrown to the lake of fire. So in summary, we looked at the story of Cain and Abel and their offerings. Cain rejected on both counts, his heart and his offering, his heart and his works. Abel was accepted on both of those, and Abel was a prophet. Therefore, he was speaking of the Christ. We don't know exactly what he was saying, but he knew and understood the concept of atonement looking forward to the Messiah, even if he doesn't know the name Jesus Christ yet. How about the men? We looked at them and how how they worked, what they did, how God intervened with Cain, but Cain didn't want it. He rejected it, and therefore there is judgment. This is the way of Cain. Knowing right willfully rejecting it. Um, so that's kind of a lot of in, uh, information. Uh, hopefully that's interesting. Is there, uh, we've got a, just a minute or two for questions if there's any questions on this stuff. I know that kind of moves fast with a lot of thinking. So I guess we'll spend our day contemplating. Uh, what I'd encourage you to do, I put, you know, there's various verses on there. You can cross-reference those as you're trying to go. What I'm really enjoying doing a lot of prep for this class and thinking and little nuanced things, but do we use Scripture to interpret Scripture or what some guy says? Are commentaries inspired? No. They're helpful. They're very useful. They are not the inspired Word of God. Is cross-referencing Scripture inspired Word of God? Yes. That's what our goal is, and I think we come face-to-face with this amazing God the Alpha and the Omega, with this sovereign plan that cannot be altered. And it's not about comfort now. It's not about self-esteem now. It's not about telling your kid they get a trophy when they didn't do nothing to have self-esteem. That's garbage. That's nowhere in Scripture. What God is interested in is taking the pain to pull out the sliver, having the pain to touch the lamb and slit its throat, having graphic reality of sin now so it's crushed and destroyed, and we understand that going for eternity. He's considered, he's concerned about our eternity. What a loving God, not the proximal. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you for having a plan so far beyond us that's so infinite, so perfect. Um, yet you love us and you give us the opportunity to choose you when you turn that light on. Lord, I, I just pray that we'll respond to you turning on the light and that we will want to grow and we'll search your word daily so we can want you in our heart and do what you want with our actions. In Jesus' name, amen.